morning, good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when we consider the unconsiderable here, or is it the inconsiderable? Anyway, as I've said before, what used to be confined to these hours is now kind of assaulting us 24-7 like drinking from a fire hose, as uh, my grandmother would have said. So um, we will proceed apace. Tonight's show is kind of like a continuation of last night's, and I will explain what I mean by that as we kind of go through the the morning. Uh, I will introduce our guests. We have several. And we might be joined by uh, some more dropping in from somewhere. Uh, We may know and we may not know. So let me kind of start at the top. Um, We are focused here at the other side of midnight on La Palma. And again, as I said last night, there's no need to panic because if something really bizarre happens, you'll have nine hours of warning if you are on the east coast of the United States. You'll have less warning if you're in Europe along the East Coast or in Africa along the coast. Uh, You'll have more time if you're in the South American coasts or in the Caribbean or in the Gulf of Mexico. But that's the time it takes for a shockwave, i.e. a tsunami, to transmit through the water from La Palma to the um, eastern side of the United States, traveling at the speed of sound. Very long wavelength uh, wave. And remember, water is incompressible, so it isn't the water that physically moves from La Palma to Atlantic City. It's the shock wave. It's the underwater sound. It's that that abrupt, you know, change of uh, density of pressure uh, occasioned by molecules smashing into other molecules, and those smashing into others, et cetera, et cetera. The best analogy that I've seen for this is a guy setting up shots on a billiard table where you have a whole string of billiard balls and you you know, uh, aim the cue ball at the one on the end and it's the other one on the other side that moves because the motion, the energy is transmitted through the balls that remain stationary and it's the last one that moves. So that's the way sound waves move in air and underwater. The, uh, the actual uh, vibrations are transmitted elastically so that you don't have very much movement of the actual material. It's the transmission of the wave in the medium, which is important. Anyway, it takes about nine hours if something bizarre happens in La Palma. And when I say something bizarre, what am I talking about? Well, many decades ago, there were a couple of bright geologists who published a paper. They looked at the fissure that was created in the island of La Palma back in 1949 during a major earthquake where about half of the island is balanced by friction on the other half. And with enough of a force, enough of a kick, or with enough inflation of the ground caused by underground uh, gaseous pressures of the added energy from the magma moving up and heating what's above it, um, about half the island could uh, release its frictional sticking to the other half of the island and it could slide into the Atlantic Ocean, reaching a velocity, something like 500 billion tons of matter, of rock, of basalt, reaching the ocean with a velocity of something like 200 miles an hour. 
Think of it as the largest, most deadly cannonball dive into a pool possible. When that mass hits the ocean, according to the calculations, it could raise a wave 3,000 feet high, which would, of course, quickly dissipate, but it would stretch out into this long wavelength, and it would race across the... um, uh, it would it would it would race across the Atlantic Ocean at something like 600, 500, and some miles per hour. And if you look at the simple you know plots, it takes about nine hours at that speed to cross the ocean from La Palma to the East Coast. So that's where you get the warning. Now we've been talking um, here on the show for the last few days beginning last Sunday when the eruptions of La Palma started after a 30-year hiatus. We've been talking about how all those along the east coast of the U.S. or the coast of South America, the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, Canada, Europe, Spain, Africa, moving around in this circle, can get warning. And the idea was that you would plug into the U.S. Geological Survey, which, of course, is monitoring earthquakes in real time with networks of seismometers all over the world, and there would be an alert on your phone. You could literally set it so that if something really big, like half the island let go and hit the Atlantic, you would know that, and you would know that you would start your clock. You'd have about between six and nine hours to grab your go bag and your kids and your cats and your dogs get in the car and get out of Dodge and head to high ground in the uh, eastern United States that's heading west toward the Appalachian Mountains Um, anyway um, Keith Morgan who is our uh, resident uh, uh, expert from former days with Ted Koppel and Nightline and is currently our IT expert and sound and audio guy. He went looking and a friend of his went looking for live links. Keith, what did you find about USGS alerts for earthquakes under La Palma this afternoon? Keith? Any, uh, any data on any kind of seismic activity going on at La Palma? And there's a wait, few wait, other wait. locations. You, you mean you could not find any live links? Oh, I found there's uh, video links. Um, I think there's only one right now because the other one uh, kind of disappeared. But the, um, in terms of seismic data, where you would normally find it on the USGS, there's nothing. And there's a couple other places that usually have seismic data, and they're showing nothing right now. So I'm trying to find locations that uh, may have that seismic data uh, available. Hmm, that is very strange. Because obviously with all this public interest, particularly since in the worst case scenario, a major portion of the East Coast would be affected, you would think that the taxpayer-supported United States Geological Survey would have a live link so you could literally monitor 24-7 and it would you know, alert on your phone when something really major happened. I mean, it's not like there aren't earthquakes going on under La Palma right now. Um, now, if we look at my items tonight in Radio with Pictures, first of all, that, that first image, right, when you click on uh, Live Links on Richard on your Live Links, and that takes you to my section, 
That first shot is from Ron Gerbron. He found it, and it's stunning. It's a close-up of the new fissure, which has opened up on the south side of the uh, volcano. <clears throat> and uh, uh, that's just a spectacular shot. If you enlarge it, click on it, look at that. I mean, that is en nature at its most amazing. Um, if you go back to Radio with Pictures, number two is a news story this afternoon which basically said they've uh, technically opened the airport, but, of course, nobody's flying in and out because there's too much uh, uh, stuff in the air, particularly volcanic ash. And <clears throat> we all know what volcanic ash does to modern jet engines, so there are no flights even if the, quote, airport is technically opened. Now, item number three, actually, it's technically number two if you look there, that's the one you want to look at because that does have on the left-hand side, it has uh, radio. It has uh, seismic plots. You can see them there. Uh, they're very small. You can actually make them bigger. Let me do that. Let me make this bigger. There we are. Uh, there's tremor amplitudes at the at the top. There's um, GPS measured deformation. That's the the swelling, and you want to you know take a look at those. Um, and then down below. You can see from the Institute of Geographical Nacional, which I guess is the um, uh, Spanish equivalent of the USPS, there is a, uh, a set of graphs there showing the seismic disturbances. Believe me, if the island lets go, it's going to be an extraordinary event, and it will ring every alarm. So it's not like you're going to miss it, provided someone is transmitting it. So that's the kind of curious thing. Why aren't they transmitting real-time seismic data from La Palma? Um, I'm not going to speculate because this is too important, but, you know, factor that into your calculations when you're making plans for what to do in case something very uh, dramatic and untoward happens vis-a-vis -vis the under, uh, underground activity. Uh, moving on. If, if a... Um, <laughs> Volcano, which could indeed send something very major our way, uh, is not enough. Look at item number three. There's a hurricane in the Atlantic named Sam. I'm not sure whether it's, you know, like named after Samantha Carter in uh, uh, SG-1, but uh, it's named Sam. It's now a Cat 4. It's heading west. You can see the cone of uh, uncertainty there. It's in the south-south Atlantic. It's moving northwest. Um, some models are saying it could turn out to sea, meaning it would just kind of wind up along the east coast. Bermuda might be having a problem, but it would safely uh, uh, not contact the U.S. mainland. Other models have it moving farther west, in which case we might have some problems with Florida and or the uh, South Atlantic coast. Again, keep an eye on that one if you're living along the East Coast. None of these things now can be taken for granted. Item number four, this was something that I mentioned, I think, at the top of the show last night. Uh, before we got on the air, <clears throat> I learned last night that there had been a major train derailment, an Amtrak derail uh, derailment in the wilds of Montana. The train, which was headed from Chicago to the state of Washington called the Empire Builder uh, came off the tracks and no one is sure the NTSB is investigating. 
They may not have definitive information for the next several months because these guys are very thorough, uh, but it looks like at this point it might have been a, a switch problem. Uh, there's some indication of that. Unfortunately, at this at this time, three people died of 141 passengers and 16 crew members uh, on board, and I think some others are in serious condition. Uh, you might want to, if you're interested, you know, check out. Uh, that video and then look for further live links. I mean, seeing those cars tilted and lying on their side is just is just appalling. And we haven't had major train derailments in the United States for decades because there's now a, a national system of electronic, uh, not only feedback, but also active, <clears throat> uh, you know, engineers take little hand cars with uh, ultrasonic detectors and magnetic detectors and they roll down the rail and they can tell if there's a problem with the steel and if there's a problem with switches and all that kind of thing and so they do this on a routine basis so it's going to be important to find out what went wrong here and why three people have died as a result part of it may be that Amtrak uses lines that uh, uh, you know other other um, uh, corporations like the Southern Pacific, et cetera, use, and those carry a lot of freight. And so there's tremendous wear and tear. On the infrastructure, remember that term, infrastructure? I mean, we are so overdue for a national investment of major, major funding into infrastructure. And I'm going to insert a political statement here. For all those people, senators and congressmen who are saying, Oh, we can't afford $3.5 trillion. Oh, my God, it'll kill us. It'll bank. Give me a break. What is not mentioned is that this proposed $3.5 trillion is over 10 years, which means it's only $350 million per year amortized against an income, a gross domestic product in that same period of time, of something like 200 trillion so give me a break this extraordinary tragedy in montana illustrates as nothing else except there have been a lot of else's should do that we need to invest again in the united states we haven't done major investments in infrastructure in well probably something like 50 years half a century it's time Okay, um, the rest of my items are for the body of the show, so let me do the following. Let me bring on our guests of this evening, starting with uh, Ron Gerbron. Ron, of course, is our resident generalist. He is also a member of the imaging team. Uh, if you have a peculiar question uh, to ask, Ron is the guy to ask as he knows an awful lot about an awful lot of things, and his bio is there uh, somewhere. I guess I, uh, oh, I know, I need to click on, on bios. Okay, so I will do that. And bingo, there is Ron's bio. And it says he is a proudly uncredentialed polymath. Well, we all know that. Ron, are you with us? Welcome to the other side. Oh, yes. Oh, Excellent. Yes, I'm there. Excellent. We okay. also have Rogero uh, with us, uh, Callow, Rogero Callow from Britain, 
who, although he does not have specific imaging tonight, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you do, but he does have some very interesting opinions of what we were discussing last night, grading into tonight's topic, which is, what if the unimaginable happens? I mean, last night, because Dr. Plata was very mainstream and was obviously following the NASA models and the SpaceX models and the Blue Origin models of expanding into the solar system and utilizing resources and all that, I did not want to, um, uh, shall we say, um, uh, you know, shake the boat. So I didn't introduce him to the idea that it's not a level playing field, that in fact they're going to find things out there that are not on anybody's radar except ours. And so tonight is devoted to the what-if side of the equation. What if, which we know is going to happen, what if as Musk expands to the moon, sending his first tourists in the starship in two or three years around the moon, what if equipped with binoculars and smartphones and Quest Star telescopes and all kinds of high-tech devices for looking at the moon from a close orbit as they swing around, what if all those civilians suddenly start seeing all the ancient glass ruins on the moon? What do you think that's going to do to public and governmental perception <clears throat> of the need to seize the high frontier of space before, oh, let's say the Chinese? Because, of course, ruins mean not, you know, ancient stuff made out of blocks, but in this case, an extraordinarily sophisticated high-tech civilization, which even if the stuff on the top is in ruins, the stuff buried underneath the surface, like I'm talking miles beneath the surface, should be in pristine condition. Meaning that engineers and scientists from Earth of, of whatever nationality gets there first, will have access to a treasure trove of extraordinary new science, new physics, new technology, new engineering, new machines, new capabilities. Uh, there's no way to put limits on the possibilities for accelerating the development of space infrastructure to feed back to support the 7 billion almost people here on planet Earth by reaping the rewards of what is waiting for us in the solar system. And you know, looking back, when, when my friend Kraft Ericke, who wrote those two extraordinary books, The Extraterrestrial Imperative, meaning it's our mission, our kind of... Uh, manifest destiny to go out there and, and utilize what's out there. And the other one, The Magnificent Heritage, I wonder, particularly in terms of that second title, whether Kraft Ericke, remember, heir apparent to the knowledge of the Germans, of Hitler, of the Abernabi, of, you know, the in-crowd, um, if he didn't know more than he let on all those decades ago when we were having those really amazing conversations. Because to, to title a book, The Magnificent Heritage, A, it's got to be really cool, uh, a magnificent, and B, it's, it's got to be bequeathed to us. Well, all this materiel, all this science, all this engineering that will be found amid 
those ruins on the moon, on Mars, and God help us all over the rest of the solar system. Our, there's nobody else here, we think. So it's ours by default. It's kind of like the, the rights of salvage on the high seas. <clears throat> if you find an ocean liner fully laden uh, with the latest and there's nobody on board, then it's yours. And it could be worth on the open market, you know, what, hundreds of millions of dollars. So what's out there in terms of the artificial information technology and heritage is by right of salvage going to be ours or more appropriately the property of those who find it first and that brings up of course the chinese the russians the indians we are a planet which is fractured we have something on this world called nation states and what do you think will happen when nation states are forced to admit and in public that there are a stunning stunning riches to be bequeathed to their societies to their cultures to their civilizations by simply sending human crude spacecraft to the moon anyway Ruggiero welcome to the other side of midnight I'm sure you have many interesting ideas about this morning Richard uh, thank you um, I do actually and um, that was I think the whole moon issue was the reason why I, I got into this space stuff in the first place oh. when uh, I started listening to your show, shows way back way back and it also ties into the whole that ancient Egypt hmm. issue which I think probably is for another show to discuss um, but uh, I do have some items actually which I forwarded on to Kintia. Yeah, and, 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 and hang on, Kintia is still working on them, so let me no, move on. they are up. They're up. Well, but I don't okay. want to bring, I don't, for sure, I don't want you to talk about details yet, because I want to I, introduce I John. So just be patient. Okay. okay. We have Jonathan Womack with us tonight. That was kind of like a, like a wild card. John uh, really loved last night's show, and I said, well, you want to be part of tonight's show, because... You know, all of our guests have very strong opinions, and they come from different backgrounds and different perspectives. John, of course, is heavily involved in the idea of reincarnation, and that's obviously something that I'm intrigued with uh, for several different reasons. He is a major author. He writes like hell. I mean, he really knows how to write. He is an author, first class. Uh, one of our colleagues uh, got a copy of his latest book and was enthralled. Anyway, he's also a licensed uh, electronics technician. Um, he has been, he's worked with IT for many, many years, uh, providing tech services in the Boston area and Cambridge to corporations and all those august higher uh, educational facilities there. And today he is the executive producer at Mindworld Entertainment of a new TV series, The OBE Show, Metaphysics and More, which is airing on Amazon Prime. John, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you for having me, Richard. Well, as my grandmother used to say, you're welcome for being had. Anyway, um, all three of you, let me, let me, uh, let me, let me start out in, in reverse order. We're going to get to specifics because Ron has got some really amazingly cool stuff. 
But let me start with the guys who were not part of last night's show and ask you basically big picture. What do you think of this entire concept? What do you think of the addition of E.T. Ruins to the conversation of last night? And where do you think and at what rate are we going with all of this? Who wants to start? Oh, they're also shy. <laughs> I'll jump in, Richard. And I know they're not shy. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Well, it's great to see that uh, <clears throat> in our current lifetime, it's been a struggle to get to the point we are at. I mean, I remember like it was yesterday when you were on CNN pointing out the face on Mars. Oh, my God. Do you realize that that one appearance completely kiboshed my ever after appearances on they were so mad they were so angry they were furious that i did that because <clears throat> what i did for those that didn't see it is you know that I, I was in new, in new jersey so i could go across to the cnn bureau in new york southern manhattan which i did and i had this very large uh, uh, uh portfolio that artists use to carry a big leather case with handles black leather and you can put big pictures to protect them when you're carrying them around, which I'd had. And I had an enlargement of the high sun angle that Mark Carlotto had developed of the 1976 image, the second image, the high sun angle image of the face on Mars. And during the show, I literally simply took it out from the case next to my feet when I'm sitting there in the studio. I put it up on the little desk that I was sitting behind and I started pointing out things, and oh my God, talk about putting the cat among the pigeons. Indeed. And you remember and that? I do remember that. I think that was 1995, maybe? 96. 96. I think that's on my uh, Morgan Curve YouTube channel. You mean the whole the whole program? Uh, the section that they interviewed you. Oh on, my God! I haven't seen that in decades. Have you got the one with Larry King? No, I don't have. Ah, that one. yeah, remember that night. Anyway, sorry, John. You know, we're going down memory lane here. Very dangerous. <laughs> well, I'm just so happy to see that. Um, you know, I've I've talked about this rock tech. Uh, a lot over the years and I mean this is all going to come out there's no stopping it now I mean with Elon and these folks getting involved the elitist who want to keep us on this planet keep us imprisoned here they're they're screwed because this is all going to happen I mean they're trying to end the US literally before we get to Mars because they don't want us there. And well, because they much... think they own Mars. They think they are from Mars. They think they're the only ones that deserve all this because they are the inheritors by birth, by DNA, by bloodline, whatever you want to call it, of the, of the cool stuff, and we don't count. And the funny thing is, the ironic thing is that these same folks are – they are not Martians. I think of you and me and Keith and all of us folks listening. We were on Mars back in the day, and that's why we're so fascinated and drawn mm. to it. 
I don't know whether I buy that model. <laughs> and we got three hours to argue about this. I'll tell you what, we're coming uh, uh, up or down, depending upon your definition, to a, a break here at the bottom of the hour. Um, why don't we pick this up on the other side? In the meantime, I thought this was kind of appropriate. This is a theme from one of my favorite TV shows, which certainly tonight applies to the land of enchantment. And what we're talking about, it is the wild, wild west. Will it be replicated upstairs on the wild high frontier? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale. is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. 
and some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news with Timothy, Annetta, and Kinthia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. everyone on this Sunday night, September 26, 2021. Well, we've gotten off to a very interesting start because John has put his finger on the problem. For 40 plus years, ever since I got seriously interested after the Petro and Molinar into the mystery of the face on Mars, I mean, the thing that really shocked me, and maybe it shouldn't have, maybe I was naive, But it wasn't the fact that NASA didn't know this stuff is real and it's there. It's the fact that the higher-ups, the intelligentsia, the managers, the senior management of NASA, they know it's real and they've been foisting a cover-up on us for the last 50-plus years. So, Ruggiero, what are your thoughts on this rather controversial idea that we've been snookered for longer than some of us have been alive? Where do I start? Um, I, do you remember uh, quite a while, well, many years ago, Richard, or I seem to remember, you were on perhaps Jeremy Paxman's show? Oh, good the, grief. What is it? Is, is tonight, this is your life or something? Uh, <laughs> It's an important discussion because, you know, you open, you open some doors that perhaps people don't really want to knock on. Um, but, you know, your, your phrase that you always use is like, science is nothing without investigation. Is that right? Or That's without... one of them. Yes, yes. So, so, fair enough, some people would have said, oh, you know, what are these people looking at? You know, it's just light in the shadow. But they didn't have Keith Lee in his gigapans back then, did they? So... When you look at the work that keeps done, that I, I've investigated some some of, you can clear. So you know, for all for those inquiring minds out there, we still need to look look further. You know, there's there's still work to be done, and with the wealth of uh, over, overwhelming evidence that. Perhaps there's something else going on. Um, you know that book needs to be uh, be reopened. That's that's my starting statement on it, Richard. And then uh, when you go into my 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 links, um, 
I've got more stuff which which leads into the conversation for later. I think I'll let you start. Yeah, let me let me go to Ron. Uh, Ron, you were you were listening to last night, and you were participant at the end during the <clears throat> discussion with uh, Doug Laplata. I, I keep thinking of Doug in terms of the river in you know uh, South America. Doug Plata. Um, what are your big picture thoughts? Are we on the verge of finally finding out? I, it's hard to say that because it's come up so many times. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm venerable enough to have remembered many moments when it seemed like we, it was about to happen, but it seems as imminent now as any other time. Well, wait, 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 wait. hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I think you may be overlooking the context. Remember, all these previous discussions have been based against the background of governmental official space programs. NASA, ESA, the Russians, the Japanese, the Chinese, whatever, government entities. What has changed and is about to change in a huge fashion and actually began the change uh, two weeks ago on a Wednesday, civilians, people who don't sign NDAs, people who are not tied to military you know, requirements or, or um, uh, you know, lifetime uh, pensions and people who are just part of private sector or just ordinary citizens who with eyes, balls and binoculars and smartphones, I mean, how are you going to keep them quiet unless you censor the links, live social media links? And the more that happens, the more a whole bunch of other people are going to go, why aren't we seeing real live images, given that we can, you know, send images from everywhere, including the, the apex of an erupting volcano on the other side of the planet? Well, we do have, you know, there are improvements in things. I mean, I'm continually impressed, uh, and I hope the guys over there are listening to this, I'm continually impressed by the actually increasing quality of the pictures coming out of the Perseverance mission and the fact that they put the bloody stuff up within hours. I mean, to me, you, you know, this is one of the coolest things. Within hours, we're seeing finished pictures coming back from... Mars, you know, not within a few days mm. or something, which everybody was relatively comfortable with. But I mean, they're coming up, you know, almost too fast to mess with. Almost said another word. Well, uh, I, l l <laughs> let me let me interrupt because you know you might people might think, well, wait a minute, there's a real contradiction here, a paradox. If you guys are saying NASA's censoring all the good stuff, you know, ancient ruins on Mars in Jezero, a dome over Jezero, ruins on the moon, all that. But you got all these pictures. How can you bitch and moan and say that they're censoring it when they're giving you all this data? And the resolution, what? the resolution of the paradox, from my perspective, and we'll hear yours momentarily, is they don't think it matters who knows. It's who of influence in the society knows. And as long as authority figures kept keep saying you guys are nuts. It doesn't matter what images there are of stunning ancient artifacts. Nobody will believe us. The culture is unperturbed, and they can post anything they want, and no one gives a damn because it isn't NASA or ESA or the Russians or the Indians or the Chinese saying they're real. Now, the break point is when you have a whole bunch of tourists who are flocking into space on you know, Musk rockets and zooming around the moon, looking down and going, 
oh my God, look at that. Oh my, look. In other words, once you have someone who's willing to put voice to what the images are showing, that equation totally, totally changes. Ron? Well, I certainly don't disagree with that part, except do you have, does anyone out there have uh, some solid uh, indication that none of those people actually are handed an NDA to sign? I don't know that. Well, wouldn't you think they they would say something? I mean, hell, we know that Trump had his staff signing NDAs, and it turns out they're not worth the paper they were printed on. Well, that's often the case. And I mean, you know, people have made solid cases over the years that uh, even the ones that are, you know, were considered authorized and mainstream and within the government uh, are of limited value if somebody would stand up to them. But it's that same thing. If the authorities say, "Okay, this means something and, you know, you know what will happen, we will send over the Rottweilers to eat your family if you uh, (laughs) don't. Uh, if if you mess with this, it's not that difficult to intimidate people, especially about something that isn't in itself life threatening to them. You know what I mean? Just, you know, just, you know, of course, you're not going to talk about this. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity you have. You can take pictures, you know, and you can take those. I mean, anybody that thinks that we're going to crack all the walls of secrecy from some Instagram postings by the uh, members of one of those volu- one of those civilian crews. No, that's not going to do it. I disagree. I totally, totally disagree. Because if it doesn't happen that way, Hank, ruins on the moon. They're going to go into an orbit like 60 miles up with modern cameras, you know, CCDs. They will see things that the the Hasselblads, you know, film or television, Viticons could never imagine. And I can actually show you. Uh, an example later on in the morning when we get to some of my images, I found something so amazing in my own archive that I didn't even know I had. Anyway, let's let's go back to John. John, what do you think? Are you an optimist or a pessimist that we're really on the knife edge, finally, of disclosure with a capital D? I'm in the middle and I'm looking for <laughs> how is one for you. How is one in the middle of a binary question? Either there is well, release of information or there isn't. It's like being half pregnant. You can't be half pregnant. You can't half disclose this. Once anything is disclosed, all of it is disclosed. Well, I think to overcome the inertia of this this cover-up that's been going on for decades, you have to reach a certain threshold. And I wait, think, wait, wait. You mean like a critical mass of people? Well, I think Elon Musk is that critical mass he has started this and like i said before there's there's no stopping it now how are you going to stop him from going to mars he's going well hang on it's interesting you bring that up because someone is trying to stop him it's called the faa under federal regulations prescinding from the nixon administration and the environmental acts of the 1970s before he can launch the super heavy and Starship into even low Earth orbit, he has to go and file an extraordinarily complicated and detailed environmental impact statement. And a draft of that statement, which is submitted to the uh, federal government per the law, was filed, I think, this weekend. I think it's online. And I had a link and I lost it. I was going to put it in my news items tonight. It turns out that a process 
which should have taken two or three months and was begun back in 2020, is now 14 or 15 months and there's still no end in sight. And the negative people, the, the pessimists, are saying that given all the hoops that the government is forcing him to jump through, it could be until 2022, even if he gets permission for launch, the big super launch, uh, until he can make that first launch. So they're trying to bureaucratically slow him down. Um, I use the analogy of being bitten to death by ducks. So the bureaucracy, if it's being orchestrated, and of course the bureaucrats have no idea what they're forestalling. They're just given orders, you know, slow this thing down, find every excuse, that kind of thing. They don't know why. The bureaucracy is like a huge ocean liner. I think it was President Obama who compared the United States to a huge ocean liner. And instantly I thought, <clears throat> Titanic. Anyway, um, turning her or steering her takes a long time. So, yes, I think they're trying to slow this down. Now, my, my suspicion is it has to do with rituals, with ritual numbers. You know, the make no wine before it's time model that they, they're not trying to foreclose this closure. They just want it to happen on their paren ritual, closed paren timetable. What do you think? Hmm, that's a possibility. I, I don't have an opinion one way or the other. Okay. Ruggiero, what do you think? I, I mean, you're far afield. You're like an alien looking at this from the planet Mars or from the Green Isle of, of England. You know, are you are you up on enough American politics to to know whether um, uh, Musk can be stifled in the crib? A few bits. Um, personally, I don't think it's time yet. I think um, they're still testing things. If, if that's what's going on. No, wait. When uh, you say it's not time, you mean time for disclosure or time for the technology to be developed to put ordinary folks out there to see, to report, to take pictures. I think the technology is probably getting there. I think with the disclosure, I don't think um, a lot of the planet's ready yet if there's stuff like that. However, I put something onto our thread that um, I saw like last week in The Guardian. They posted online an article they, and they said, is it time we opened up the UFO question again? I know that's a different subject to what we're talking about tonight. Mm, well, it's related. Remember, mm. there's a whole bunch of people that, you know, for, for decades have said, oh, Hoagland does UFOs. No, I'm yep. doing extraterrestrial archaeology. But because yep. people are not that sophisticated, they just lump it, particularly those that want to, under the uh, umbrella of UFOs. Yeah. Well, I support you on that, you know, and, and, and that's what we're all doing on this research level. Um, you know, the, the UFO thing is not necessarily a question I'd, I want to get into that much tonight myself but um i think with regards to the disclosure when when humanity is a, is a bit more ready you know we're we're in big conflict on this planet of the very educated people and those who are less so they're a little bit not going to be too condescending but still in the stone age with their thinking and we, we have you know by by opening up these doors we have quite a, a challenge to um overcome by, by releasing this data. It needs to come out, but uh, it's going to be a struggle bringing it to the people, I think. And that's why it's up to the, the mainstream media to, to start to 
you know, push the boundaries. And it seems like the Guardian have, uh, have opened that up a little bit. Hmm. Um, Cheryl? Another thing, one more thing, Richard, is what are the Vatican saying? Yeah, I haven't been following what they've been doing, but they're always quite interesting with their posts. What, what, what are they doing on this subject? I don't, I, I don't, I think we dropped uh, Skype there for a minute. What, oh, what? Go on. Um, I, I mentioned also the Vatican. I'm, I'm still not hearing what you're saying. He's saying the Vatican. The Vatican. Can you hear oh, the Vatican. No, see, I missed that totally. Uh, well, remember, the Vatican started out many years ago with various heads of the Vatican Observatory saying very peculiar things like, yes, we should baptize aliens. And having been a Catholic, I know that you cannot baptize someone who isn't part of the human family, which means in their view, they quote ETs, the aliens are really cousins and brothers and sisters. And of course you can baptize them because they're part of the human condition, part of the human genome. So that right there was a huge Emily Dickinson moment uh, where they were not saying they don't exist. They were saying that if we ever meet them, yes, we will baptize them, which I thought was an extraordinary step forward, setting the ground for ultimately ad admitting what's, what's going on. Wasn't the Vatican the place where they had that Christmas display with the robots? Yes. <laughs> I forget who brought that to uh, our attention. That's pretty far out. That's pretty far up from the human family. I don't know. I Politicians, uh, whether they're wearing uh, brocade robes or um, suits, are very good at helping people to squabble. And that's a noise factor. And I think that's what's involved here. You know, we should not worry about them so much. I mean, this is this disclosure is not up to them, not at this point, because you're right about Musk and company. When people that are going up with Musk are taking pictures, then it is over in a certain sense because they can't control that. And if they try to, it will become incredibly obvious that somebody is censoring. This first flight that yeah, was exactly. not this first flight was not under Musk technical control and I meant to kind of get into it with Doug last night and we were moving in other directions so I didn't want to kind of sidetrack us but to me the weirdness of the four civilians in earth orbit for three days in their own spacecraft with their own cupola with their own extraordinary views and wanting to raise money for St. Jude's is they did everything wrong everything wrong and for us to be part of that you know, it's his spacecraft, his rockets, for him to have signed a contract that let uh, Isaacman, I guess, control it was, was nuts because it was done totally, totally wrong. And it disappeared. It left the launch pad. You watched it go into space. And then it was like it disappeared in the onslaught of all the other news that were, you know, inundated with, like drinking again from fire hose. And stories, it's now behind a paywall at Netflix, they're producing, I understand, another segment of their documentary on the 30th of September. But in terms of a modern era, modern, you know, uh, information consumers, out of sight, really out of mind. So they effectively censored whoever did it for whatever reason. They really jazz and excitement and, oh, my God, look at this, of the first civilians in orbit. And it fell like a little tiny pebble in the vast tsunami from La Palma in the middle of the Atlantic. It was 
Very elegantly done, but I frankly think it was very sophisticated censorship. Now, did it matter? No. Why? Because they were only in Earth orbit and there's nothing there to see unless a UFO pulls up alongside and the guys wave. When you go around the moon, it's going to be Musk in charge of his own mission. Hell, he will probably be riding with them. I do not see the same, oh, we don't know what happened to them operating at that level as operated on Inspiration 4 because it's a whole different ball game when you're going to the moon. Thoughts? Well, that pretty well sums it up. Maybe we should get to the hard evidence instead of the... Um, well, I, there, I there, that's there's the scenario. Well, there's one more piece of context. You know, let's, let's find out what the other guys think. John? Yeah. Well, what I do is I take these litmus tests. Uh, I was at my dentist the other day. He's from Egypt. He's pushing 70. Best dentist I ever had. Great guy. And I mentioned to him, you know, I know him pretty well at this point, and I, I wait before I approach certain <laughs> people. <laughs> so, I mentioned uh, <clears throat> about Mars okay. and that there's a civilization on there, and he just flat out said, there's nothing on Mars. Come on. Now, wait a minute. This is a real Egyptian from Egypt? Yes. With those big pointy things in the desert right outside Cairo? That guy? That guy. And he thinks there's nothing on Mars. There's now, when you said civilization, Mars. did you make it clear we're not talking current Los Angeles on Mars, we're talking ancient ruins like ancient pyramids in Egypt? I did. I mentioned ancient ruins on Mars. And he and said there's uh, nothing there. Why? Did he tell you why? No, just Oh, that, darn. Uh, you shake your head and they look at you funny. And Well, you need hold it. You need to ask the next question. Okay, why don't you believe that this could be real? Well, I'm kind of waiting on that part. I have another uh, next month. I have an appointment, so we'll see. But same thing. I was at. Uh, I Harvard. wouldn't. I wouldn't ask him or point out things to him while he's mucking around in your in your mouth. <laughs> That's right. That that could be dangerous. Yes. Yeah. But I would take the same yeah. test at Harvard at the Graduate School of Education. There's all these teachers there. Right. And I would say it might be about uh, one example. I look up and I'm outside, Appian Way, and I look up, beautiful sunny day, and I say, look at those chemtrails. And, you know, there's a tic-tac-toe in the sky. And this couple of students I'm talking to would look up and go, those are contrails. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And I might mention Mars to somebody, and they go, eh. So it's kind of like, the students have been dumbed down. They don't want to think outside the box. There's nothing on Mars or the moon. And, but there are a handful, a few, that I would say something to. They go, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Richard Hoagland, yeah, mm, yeah. And they're, you know, they're awake and aware. Hmm. Well, it doesn't take 100%. It doesn't take 50. It only takes 2%. I mean, this is kind of like a rule of thumb. Um, Ruggiero, what, have you done any public surveys, any questioning people, any trying to bring this up at cocktail parties or uh, wh wherever you hang out? I've done a little bit. Um, I've done and? a few protests. More on, you know my picture of the bone? Yes, yes. So I've randomly shown it to a few uh, medical type persons or artists. I go, oh, what do you think of this picture? Um, 
I've drawn. And they're like, oh, right, that's a really nice, nice bone, blah, 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 blah. And I just tried to get their opinion, and I've just held back. I haven't told them where it's actually from um, because they would just never believe me. If I, if so I wait, let, let me get this straight. You show them the picture and your sketch first, but you don't tell them where it is, right? That's correct. And they say, oh, that's really nice. That's really cool. Good job, yep. bloke. <laughs> yep, yeah, nice nice sketch. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I let other people... Uh, you just show them the sketch. What about the... Sorry, Ruggiero, but what about I'll the photographs? Done the comparison of both. They go, where is it? I'm like, I'm not telling you. And, then, and I just leave it there because it's not the context I feel I can I can do that. Wait, but you mean so, you don't tell them? Uh, but, that's the, don't. but that's the missing piece of data. You need to see their reaction when you tell them because I'm guarantee you it'll totally change, totally. And how do I know that? He's because right. because John um, oh John West many years mm -hmm. ago when he was working on the Sphinx, he uh, took a picture of the Sphinx. And he had it on on a like like a, a mounted board, and he had two pieces of cardboard uh, that he could flip over the top, so all they could see was the banded strata. And he showed this one geologist at Peabody, very memorable story, and he said, "What do you think caused that?" And this geologist, eminent guy, forget his name, says, "Oh, water, definitely water erosion." Then he flipped up the top so we could see it was the Sphinx. And he immediately threw him out of the office. He said, there can be no water erosion in Egypt. That's crazy, you know. Get out. So it's all about context. It's back to the old cliche, that which you cannot imagine, you cannot see. These people cannot imagine. And then the question is why? And that's a really interesting conundrum. Ron, you had something you wanted to say. Uh, I was just thinking that the... Uh... Yeah, the original nature of the Sphinx was it was the Romans that decided that it was a full-body Sphinx and started the first steps along that thing. It Probably most of it was not visible most of the time. It was a um, part of a complex that was, not, that was made of perishable materials. I'm just saying this because after a lot of research and, and thought, this is what it comes out to. But in my opinion, if you will, it was a... Uh, complex that was meant to be seen from the river's side and it was because uh, it's it's an outcropping you realize it's not constructed out of little pieces right right it's uh, it's, 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 it's a carved there, there there's a, a yardang is a, is a technical geological term for it it's a it's a yardang a I guess carved so. yeah, so yardang all, yeah so so all the sculpture is on the front if you if you think of that as the side with the face yeah. uh and so the you know any any speculation on the way the rest of it looks is something else and i'm not sure that it was ever underwatered or just used to be heavy rains there and you can see hey, it in the pause ron when you hear music sorry <laughs> it's okay Whoops. we're at the top of the hour my guest this morning ron gerbron rogero calo and jonathan womack and keith is with us keith morgan and also kinthea is somewhere there in the background and um we may ask her to come on and talk about art on mars because there's a lot of art on mars starting with the infamous face i mean we are all poised i do believe on the edge of something extraordinary and when we come back and you guys will all remind me in case i forget i'm going to tell you what 
Elon Musk workaround to the FAA turns out to be, which tells me he's aware of the plan to slow him down and he's got a workaround. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're discussing the impact on the second age of space of the discovery that there are ruins as far as the eye can see all over the solar system. And the news will not come out in a press release or an academic paper, but probably on Twitter from the moon. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>